0: Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to
1: emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Happy November, listeners. And welcome to episode 298 of the Feeling Film Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Aaron, and since Directive Number Six is always podcast with your best friend, here with me for this conversation is my main man, Patrick.
0: Hello everyone, it's good to be here.
1: Very well done. And we didn't even know we were going to do that. That is awesome. I am impressed. (laughs) How
0: fun. I thought you'd enjoy that.
1: Oh, very much so. Well, I'm really excited about this week's discussion because Finch is the kind of simple film with a powerful emotional core that Patch and I tend to highly enjoy. Throw in the fact that it's one of our favorite settings, that being sci-fi slash post-apocalyptic, and it has a dog. Well, there's definitely a lot to love. If you haven't seen it yet, the film is streaming on Apple TV Plus, and we sing the service's praises often, and we will do so again now. For five bucks, you can get access for a full month, and you can watch so many great series and quite a few awesome movies and documentaries too, Finch obviously included. Give it a shot. We don't think that you're going to be disappointed. With that being said, here's your spoiler warning. We're going to talk about the movie in full. We're going to give it away. You need to experience it for yourself, so please turn away now. Now I feel like I'm talking robotic, even though I'm not trying. Please turn away now. Now, See, now I'm like thinking about my enunciation. it! I hope this goes away. Uh, You need
0: my voice enunciator to help you with that?
1: (laughs) I can't do that. (laughs) (laughs) oh just don't listen people okay that's your orders if you have not seen the movie (laughs) go away turn us off and come back later all right well i want to start patrick by talking about the world building because it's a big 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 part of this kind of small scale film it's a big scale problem but it's small scale in the number of characters that we're attached to and so before we get into kind of talking about those characters and their relationships, I wanted to talk about this world and what the issue is that they're facing, the state of the world and how the movie does a job of the job of teaching us about what is going on, such and so forth. So I wanted to tell you that I actually thought this was kind of maybe not quite up to par the first time I watched the movie i have watched it twice and so i have the benefit of having sat through it you know multiple times and knowing what's going on i actually was so impressed with the world building on the second time through just the level of detail that they put in there for me it's really exceptional the way that it things get revealed very slowly and they don't spend a lot of time doing an exposition dump. It's amazing, I love it. There's no stoppage of time where Tom Hanks sits down and says, okay, here is the entire story of what happened to the Earth. Once upon a time, (laughs) this is what it used to be like. He doesn't tell Jeff what it used to be like for the most part, he just tells him, look, there was a solar flare, it poked holes in the ozone, there's swiss cheese in the sky and uh here let me show you what happens if i put my hand under it oh yeah we die so we got to stay out of this you learn about the state of the world right away just because of the way it looks because it's desolate it's got that post-apocalyptic feel it's obviously all covered things are covered in sand we learn down the road oh that was st louis and you immediately think oh my gosh like why would st louis be covered in sand and be facing us you know, a sandstorm with massive tornadoes. So you understand, like, obviously the climates of the world have gone crazy and you learn about those solar flares and then you also get little bits of knowledge. You you kind of, you see him in this suit and you see him taking care. You see him washing down his suit to cleanse it of radiation at one point. And then of course, later on we get an explanation about the humanity side of what has taken place, which we can probably talk about more when we get there and for where that, that actually affects the characters. But I, I just really enjoyed, it, it, it was impressive to me that this movie doesn't cover a lot of ground. He starts in St. Louis, they just, it's a road trip. And yet, I feel like I got just as much information about this post-apocalyptic world as I needed to be fully invested. I didn't find myself frequently thinking, oh man, I wish I understood more about what was going on outside of Finch's bubble. I I didn't care. I knew enough to know that what I really cared about was Finch's bubble, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, this is what I would call the walking dead approach where you have a story that starts at the end of a big event. And the point of the story is not to try to explain the event itself, but to explain how the event affects the characters. And I think what Robert Kirkman does in his comic and his TV show, from the good chunk that I've read of the comic and the little bit of the TV show, is he keeps that in mind. Finch does the same thing here. We start with what I would consider pretty good exposition, It's enough that you ask questions. We have very little dialogue because there's only one human, (laughs) a dog and a robot, essentially. So you have to really be clever with the visuals. And I think what I was impressed with near the very beginning was the way in which he marked things so he wouldn't get confused about what- Like the door. Yeah, you know, cleared or putting an X, or don't mess with this. And we're given little bits and pieces over the course of the film that sort of highlight the why of how he lives, why he lives the way he does, why he stays where he does, why he has to travel. He uses a computer to give him the information and he reacts to that. And so for us as an audience, the simplicity of the story can't really get that complex because then we start asking questions about the world and the story is not about the world. It's about him. It's a human interest piece is what it is. And it's a road movie and it's drama and it's got some comedy elements. And when we look at all that together to add more pieces to that, to start getting into flashbacks, I'm grateful that we only got the one flashback that made sense. I'm glad that we didn't get any kind of exposition through flashback or really any exposition about the past anyway, because then we would have been focused on, well, what would the cure have been? What caused that? Were there some political issues going on? That's not the story being told. So being able to focus strictly on him and his story allows us to be able to live with him for this almost two hour journey, get to know him, get to know Goodyear and then eventually get to know Jeff so that we can see why something as I would say mundane as taking care of a dog would be for him, what does that mean? What I found interesting, Aaron, was that when we get to the end of the movie, what I didn't expect was that there wasn't some kind of twist. This isn't like Ellie in the Last of Us, who carries some special gift, oops, spoiler alert, sorry um and this is not a giant post apocalyptic movie about some kind of crazy disease. that's trying to be cured at the end of the movie, the mission's done. Goodyear is now in the care of Jeff, which is exactly why Finch created him. So for a lot of people, this might turn them off because they want something bigger, but I don't know that that was ever the selling point. I don't know that that was ever sold as what's the twist. There was no twist you need to take care of this dog. Why? Because I asked you to. And sometimes that's hard to to sell from a thematic standpoint, from a theatrical standpoint, from a storytelling standpoint. But because of this movie's simplicity, I think that's really where it leans in, is on that simplicity. So starting with that exposition of not telling us a lot, letting us see It gets us immersed. It gets us into that dust storm. It makes me want to put on a radiation suit and listen to 1960s or 1970s music and just be in the vehicle with him doing the thing and hopefully finding good dog food.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. And he's looking for dog food, he's looking for food for himself. We see him tracking the radiation levels, we see him noting that there are dead people everywhere in the store we see him scared by something as well a couple of different times and yet we never see any other survivors in the entire film other than the flashback we see that opening scene where he gets spooked and he wants to leave we see the same thing happen kind of later on when the small robot gets caught in a trap and then we see the moment where they're following them down the road right and the car stops above the bridge, but we never actually see other humans. And I love that. I love that it's so subtly done. Like we know there's an issue. One of the opening little, you know, pieces of dialogue when he's talking to Jeff is he's he's trying to decide where they should go because he's found out, you know, oh, there's superstorm's gonna be here, and Jeff's like, oh, it's gonna be here for approximately forty days, <laughs> and he's like, uh, that's not good. So he says. East, too many cities. That means people. West, with a little bit of luck, places that haven't been sacked and looted. And that tells you all you need to know, right? And so many movies and so many stories of this kind want to show you that. They want to be like, you need to see people hurting each other, right? And we get one, one moment, one shot of that, right? When he's telling the, the story, recounting what happened to him, which I think is more powerful than just seeing it kind of happen arbitrarily in the world around him. We see it actually affecting him directly um, in that flashback. But I just I love how slowly things are revealed. And how of course I was talking to Tyler, my son, when we were watching it and I was like, you know, sure would want to do this if, if I was capable. Like I would want to build a robot to take care of my dog if I was going to be gone too. But the thing is like I can't do that. Finch was uniquely qualified to be able to do this thing like he was already a skilled scientist and engineer in the manner that could actually take this artificial intelligence and craft it and be able to make it do what he wanted it to do and i that's more that's another part of like i guess maybe a little bit of the relationship stuff but for me it's somewhat world building too is just the fact that he thinks through jeff's design like he has a can opener built into him. It's one of the most emotionally, you know, like kind of hits me scenes in the whole movie at the very end where he's like, What do I do? What do I do? Oh, I'm going to feed the dog. That's what Finch would do is feed the dog, right? And of course, Goodyear's like, <laughs> like, I'm hungry. But he puts it in him. And I don't think we had seen it up until that point. But he has a can opener built into his stomach. He is functional for this in its purpose, right? And I know we're talking a little bit more about. You know jeff's creation in general but i think that that things like that just sell the world to me in a way that i I was really nervous going into this i thought this is kind of you know it could be just thrown away on apple tv plus and here we have another movie much like the tom hanks movie from last summer in greyhound where i would have loved to see this on a big screen like i think it was very beautiful and worth like expanding the scale but it would have been it's still an intimate movie i just i love the way it's crafted
0: i think one of the other things i like about this aaron is that it, it is a survival movie at its core and i don't think anybody denies that but in any other instance when we think about a survival movie we think of it in contrast to really living and how survival is just making ends meet doing the minimum getting through each day but what i think finch does as a movie is it sort of allows us to celebrate that survival, to really feel like, hey, we can function. And one of the moments that I see that's really, really cool is when Finch and Goodyear in the in the diner and he's ordering pancakes or he's trying to figure out what's going on. This is before Jeff starts driving. <laughs> it's just, just very much a Johnny Five moment. And I really feel like moments like that elevate the necessity for normalcy what we see in those opening shots to kind of draw back a little bit of the exposition and world building is we see that there's routine with finch and that's very much a human characteristic when you are alone or when you don't have another person to talk back to you have to rely on routine you have to rely on i get up put on the suit i go outside i go scavenge I make sure that I'm following all the rules. I get my stuff. Sometimes it'll be a win someday. Sometimes it'll not. I'll go back home and we'll get up and do it again. In a non-survival world, like the first world that we live in here in the United States, every day is different for me. Yes, I get up most days and go to work, but every day has something different to it. So there is routine and I do appreciate that, but I appreciate the diversity. I appreciate the fact that In my busy life right now, I have something each night that's a little different from the night before. It's either soccer practice or martial arts or dinner with a friend or podcasting. And if I'm surviving, I'm not thinking about any of that stuff. I'm thinking about what I'm thinking about, which is surviving. And I need to be able to get into a healthy routine of being able to do those things effectively. And so we see that in the first 10 minutes. He doesn't freak out when the dust storm's coming. He he realizes, okay, yep, the radiation levels are this. Okay, the temperature's this. Okay, this is normal, this is a Tuesday. And we see him methodically get back to his home. And yes, there was some urgency because the dust storm was coming. But what I thought was interesting in that first scene is that in any other movie like this, We would have seen him just beat the dust storm in with his robot. No, instead, the dust storm comes, he's still out in it, but he grabs his robot and they go in and they're they're good. And then he starts his evening, which is feed his dog, drink his drink, and he's got a routine there too. So I think those first probably 10 to 15 minutes really do establish what Finch's day to day is like with a storm or not. And I think that proves necessary. And it allows the idea of surviving to kind of echo a sense of thriving as well. I mean, he understands that this is the world he lives in. It's not going to get better. So how do you make the best of it? Well, you do exactly what he's doing. And I thought that was really cool.
1: Yes, absolutely. And, you know, he it shows that he's reading books, he's studying, he's been learning about it and learning about science and and. Clearly working to better understand the situation around him so that he can continue to live, survive, as you mentioned, but also continue to work towards his purpose, which is creating this robot to take care of his dog when he's gone. Because he understands the reality that due to the radiation leakage that's coming into the core of the earth now, there's only a matter of time. You're going to die he is not going to make it. He can't survive forever. And what's going to happen when that occurs? And so what better reason to have a purpose than to know your time is limited, you know, I think. And it's it's a it's an easy motivator in a lot of ways in my opinion. If you if you have someone or something that you love that you want to save. And I think that that's a very natural thing. We would all want to love and save our partner or the thing or person that's with us. And so we walk through this whole story with Tom Hanks, and I think that there's no one better to to play this role, honestly. I can't fathom someone else being able to convey this sense of aloneness and emotion that, that as well as he does, even at kind of his older age. Part of that's because we've seen him do it before. <laughs> you know, basically, he this is Wilson, but it can talk and move and do things uh, from Castaway. And... I think that it's a really neat juxtaposition to have seen him do something like that so early on in his career when he was becoming a star and then now later in his career doing such a very similar sort of kind of a performance but he carries this thing i think so brilliantly and the fact that we're just with him and it's him and a robot a couple robots and a dog that definitely informs our opinion and our perspective of everything we see and so I wanted to go through some of this uh, and I wanted to read through these things to kind of refresh people in case they have not like they didn't pay attention to them well enough or they don't have them on their mind but one thing I really enjoyed about this was how and and it speaks to this nature that you were talking about of routine right it's very much kind of a zombie land type of activity but not played for humor where we have rules, we have things set that he follows. And so there's a few different things that he does, or a couple different things. He has a set of directives that we learn are built into Jeff, right? And Jeff tells us number one, first directive a robot cannot harm a human, or through inaction, allow a human to be harmed, which obviously will come into play later in the film. And then we have the fourth directive which is, in Finch's absence, robots must protect welfare of dog. This directive supersedes all other directives. That one's cool because it tells you like Finch programmed this robot. This is not a random robot that just exists in the world. This is a specifically taught and created robot to do a thing. I also think it's interesting that he puts in there, this directive supersedes all other directives because the only other directive we know about is to save humans. So he very much specifically puts the welfare of the dog over the welfare of himself and builds that into the robot's DNA effectively. We also have the fact that there is no lesson or or there is no directive number two or three that we know of. They're there supposedly, but we don't get them mentioned, which I find very interesting. Made me wonder what they were. I'll give you just a second. Hold on. Let me get through that. And then we have the lessons, right? We have these these five lessons. We have lesson number one: never rest on an opportunity for your next meal. If there's a padlock up inside, there is intact. Essentially, very important to the world as we see it play out. Lesson number two: never willfully destroy someone else's property. But a little extra muscle wouldn't hurt. I love how these things are worded. How he how how much it matters, what he says, and how i guess humanistic in general some of these things are how caring about the rest of humanity that may or may not exist these lessons are lesson three solar flares hit the atmosphere and made the sky like swiss cheese where radiation comes through lesson four use your initiative and i think was lesson five one of them or did he add i think he adds lesson five later on he says live a little i can't remember i think that was the lesson that got added on um after the fact but my point being is like we have this relationship for this one guy and i think the vast majority of what we see take place and how he interacts with these entities in his team and his posse and his crew whatever it is all seen through these lenses of these directives and these lessons and that all functions like you said with routine and um, it helps keep things simplified um, I really, really enjoyed that. I did as
0: well. And it, it really speaks to what movies should have, especially when we when we talk about I don't know, any kind of like a time travel movie or something that needs to have rules established, because you need to be able to play in that playground with boundaries. If you didn't, your story wouldn't make sense, you could break the rules all the time, and then you would start really devaluing what that story is. You devalue the the movie. Same thing with surviving. You need to be able to have parameters. Otherwise, things are not predictable. Case in point, Finch talks about, he's asked by Jeff, why don't you travel at night? And it's precisely that reason why. It's because he knows what to look for. He knows what to do in the daytime. At night, that's when things can get really weird. In some ways, I don't know if he said this, but or maybe I inferred it, but the fact that in the daytime he is almost protected by the UVS—I mean, he's got his radiation suit—but he can't be attacked unless some, by somebody else, unless they're protected as well. You know, he could always or just, taking
1: a, or taking a risk, right? I exactly. think you're right. It is definitely implied,
0: right? With regard to the to the four laws, if you're an Isaac Asimov fan, you would recognize the first law from the three laws of robotics that he coined when he first came up with it. The first law being a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. So when that's said, Aaron, I believe anybody who has read iRobot or who understands Isaac Asimov, who has read his short stories, they know what the second and third law are. A robot must obey the orders given to it by human beings except where such orders would conflict with the first law the third law being a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. The reason why I don't believe Finch went into all that, one, is because I think the audience, the director knows that the audience is smarter than, than a duh, you know, they're, they're smart people, but also because of the fact that when he talks about the fourth law, If you're familiar with the first, second, and third, the fact that that supersedes all others, we know that it supersedes the protection of humans and the protection of the robot himself, which is really interesting because if you're a caretaker, how would that work? It really kind of brings a little bit of conflict in my head because I'm going, if, if a robot is meant to protect himself except when it's in conflict with other laws, I guess the fourth law supersedes that and it allows the robot to be able to almost have full autonomy. So the fourth law, if it supersedes all others, it means you can ignore human beings. You can essentially think for yourself and have full AI autonomy. So I thought that was really interesting. I thought it was a great nod to Asimov. It reminds us that the world that we're living in with finch is a world where those kinds of robotics robots live and it makes me wonder like what other robots would live in this universe do we have you know is johnny five there is Chappie there is you know these types of things and obviously we're not getting into that because as we mentioned before this is a simple story but it's really great to think about what universe does this actually exist in
1: do, do we ever get told whether or not Finch created Dewey? Or, I mean, he's a shopping cart, so I'm assuming he must have created Dewey as well.
0: I believe he did. The fact that... Okay. I don't think he was just given to him, so I, I, would, I would think the
1: i mean that robot wouldn't have existed in the world i mean it, it's no. like a shopping cart with a robotic arm right. it doesn't seem to be something that would be just that you'd see on that a has a specific yeah that, <laughs> yeah
0: that has a specific purpose so i'm going to infer that what we get from finch with regard to jeff was done as a prerequisite through dewey
1: you know it's also kind of interesting if you think about it maybe th- this could very well have been a situation where jeff is legitimately the first kind of AI to be in existence. And he is created out of a complete necessity to survive versus what we typically see when we're creating AI, it's for very other, I almost want to say selfish reasons, but like you're trying to expand, you're trying to go farther and push the boundaries of science, right? In almost all of the stories that include these things. But here is, a creation of something like that a creation of a robot that has this autonomy as you mentioned but only because he needs it to take care of something like he's not doing it just for the glory of having created there's nobody to get glory from there's no scientific journal to get published in there's nobody to praise him none of that matters he's doing it 100% he's creating with the sole intent of protection and that's wild that's so different than the way that we typically see these stories told.
0: Absolutely agree. I think when we look at Finch's relationship with Jeff and even with Dewey to an extent, finding a purpose in using his skills is something that's very much a human character trait. How many times have we asked ourselves, you know, what's my purpose? I want to be valuable. I want to contribute something to the world well, if the world is nothing but dust and ashes, what are you contributing to? Again, I'm not seeing any kind of major cure for the Swiss cheese ozone layer happening here. And I think what Finch sees is his ability to carry a life forward through protection by using the things that he knows, which is creating this robot to do that. And, and to me, I think that, really echoes the simplicity of the story in saying your purpose can be something as small as creating a robot to be a caretaker.
1: Yeah. Oh, definitely. And, you know, Finch has other underlying issues that he kind of suppresses throughout that we learn about towards the end of the film. We learn about them through Jeff. We learn about the fact that that postcard is not from his uncle. It was from his dad. And we get to hear the story about, Why that was meaningful for him. And getting to San Francisco is like a dual layered prospect because of the fact that, yes, it may very well be the safest place to go, hopefully. You don't know. But just getting there is like satisfying something that he's had a longing to do. And then we get to learn about how he feels like a coward because of his inaction that may or may not have led to the death of the little girl and her mother right and it's very clear to us that he harbors a ton of guilt around that and it makes me wonder how much that plays into his relationship with Goodyear like how much of that is you know he's transferring that guilt and that cowardice in he's not transferring but he is you know not transposing I'm trying to think of the word but he's converting essentially that cowardice into a desire to, at all costs, I'm going to take care of this dog. I'm not going to let that happen, right? Um, he's compensating. And because... Compensating, maybe that's the word I'm looking for, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, he's got these things that are going on beneath the surface, but in the meantime, he is simultaneously teaching Jeff about the human experience and how important it is while completely maintaining this staunch position that, Jeff is a robot. You know, at one point he gets angry and he, you know, he says, I don't need companionship. I don't need a friend. I need for you to do your job. And then he adds on a little zinger, which I thought was hilarious. He says, I know you were born yesterday, but it's time for you to grow up. And, you know, that's both funny, but also it's kind of like one of those things where sometimes we say things to each other when we're upset. And I think. As soon as they come out of our mouth we can hear we can notice that we said them like recognize it and be like oh crap i actually said those words like there's an irony in that that i'm i'm realizing right now in real time what i'm telling you to do is ridiculous (laughs) and i felt that when he kind of had that blow up and then when he's talking about he's you know he's very much trust is a, a big thing for him he's like it's all about trust but yet he's telling jeff trust no one and he says it will get you killed right and so he's got this dual thing going on with this dual relationship with trust where he's telling jeff simultaneously you've got to allow goodyear to trust you you gotta you gotta build this relationship but then he's saying don't trust anybody because it's gonna get you killed it's kind of a it's not being able to walk a straight line here um and and it makes sense obviously given the situation he's in but I love how human the experience is, both that we get through his performance, through, through Hank's performance as Finch, and then just I think the relatability of him trying to save his dog is something that just instantaneously connects us to this story in a way that is. I don't know that I ever would have connected to it like this a year ago. I'll be completely honest. So, towards the end of the movie, when they're playing fetch and my dog is like, literally has obsessive compulsive disorder about having a ball in his mouth at all times. And so when that scene is taking place, I got balled. I balled twice. I cried like a baby because all I could think about was like my dog and I'm watching Jeff, like being able to take over and play fetch and watching Finch see this happen. And, and watching that relationship as the dog is very reluctant about Jeff and he's very you know set in his ways one of my favorite cool little pieces of that is the front seat situation in the RV and how you know that's where Goodyear would sit next to Finch and in the beginning when Jeff takes over the RV at the end Goodyear's not coming up there right and we get this little kind of real brief montage that shows Goodyear getting more and more comfortable, and Tyler and I were talking about it, we were like, come on, come on Goodyear, come on Goodyear, like show him in the front seat, show him in the front seat, you know, and then we get that shot of Goodyear in the front seat, but Jeff, and you wanna cheer so loud because you're like, you get it. If you own it, if you have a dog, right? If you have that relationship, you understand what that means. Like now this, this pet has come to trust you. And all the time, the whole movie, Finch is trying to instill these lessons in him and he's trying to do it at this rocket pace. And I, it's incredibly difficult, but it is so admirable to me. Um, and, and it he talks about it. He says, he's trying to explain, I think, uh, the Golden Gate Bridge at one point and why it's important. He says, raw emotion will hit you. And he says, and when it does, what you do will define who you are. It happens to all of us, whether we want it to or not. And I think that this movie understands the human experience in so many ways and it it was overall i think just incredibly refreshing to walk through a post-apocalyptic world with a character that was ultimately very hopeful and very positive instead of what we usually see which is the world constantly beating down a survivor to the point of, you know, breaking. And it just made me happy, I guess. And it made me, me wanna believe that if this ever went down, like somebody out there could get through it like this.
0: Well, I think if there's one person that can get through it, it's Tom Hanks. Not just because he's got experience living alone <laughs> with inanimate objects, but because Tom Hanks has a gentle touch to him. He's always been a favorite actor of mine because of his charismaticness, his sort of light charismatic. He's not like Robin Williams where he's just all over the place and just wild. That's a different kind of comedy. But he has sort of a contained wildness, very, very childlike at times, but at the same time really accessible. And I think as an actor, that's what makes him fit this role. That's what makes him sympathetic or makes us sympathetic towards him and even empathetic to an extent because he brings that kind of gentleness to the role I think if we had somebody like a Tom Hardy in this role I wouldn't put him with a dog like Goodyear (laughs) we wouldn't do this he would have a pit bull right he'd have a bigger dog if we were trying to translate this because owners and their pets are usually similar in terms of not really how they look, but how they
1: act. I have teeth. All right. Listen, I have way more teeth than <laughs> does. So I'm just saying.
0: De- dental, dental comparisons notwithstanding, there are they're, okay. they're personality traits that we imprint on our dogs. I have even as recently as like the last couple of days been in a conversation with my, my wife where we've talked about our two pets and how our first dog uh, who's sitting behind me just being gentle as can be She's a, a a Collie Shepherd mix, absolutely beautiful, a cuddler, and just, I love, love her to death. And then two years after we got her, we got our pit healer mix, this black kind of horse is what we call her because she's just so big and clumsy and, but she's so sweet, especially like in the evenings when she's just settled down and she makes these big, like, <sighs> these big sighs and um, Christian jokes with me that, you know, we share the same kind of sleeping habits and that we snore quite a bit. So there are character traits that I think come from our attachment to dogs specifically and how they tend to resemble us or they tend to, we tend to resemble them in terms of how we act. Like I baby talk with my dogs all the time and I think it. I'll come in from work and Savvy will greet me at the door. I'm like, what's up, Savvy Sue? And then I'll start yelling, say hey, hope it dope. And I mean, it just it's goofy. It's what we do. But we don't do that with cats. We don't do that with birds. I don't know. I've never had a bird. But we don't do that with any other pet, I don't think, except with dogs. Like we we talk to them as if they're gonna talk back to us. And I think that what the movie does really well, especially near the end that you're talking about, with regard to trust, is there's an imprinting that happens. So When Gimli looks at you or or the relationship you have with him comes from the moment when he was just a little puppy. And that bond is gonna stay there. If I come visit you at some point, I may stay with you for weeks weeks at a time or two months or three months or six months. My relationship with that dog is not gonna be anywhere close or anywhere the same as it is with you because it's not just about time, it's about loyalty. It's about all the things that you've done with him. And the same thing with my dogs, my dogs will always think of me differently than they will any other person or my wife than any other person. And that's what happens here is Goodyear has bonded with Finch and has developed a trust because Goodyear knows that Finch is going to feed him and take care of him and let him walk on a treadmill and all these different things. And so that whole time during the movie, You've got Jeff who wants to get that trust. And honestly, I think it takes the death of Finch for him to get there because Goodyear no longer has that tether, no longer has that security blanket and he has to find someone else. Well, it's not just who's the next, you know, next man of, but who's been with, with us. Well, Jeff's been with you. And it's what makes that moment where he throws the ball so significant because he has gained that trust, but he hasn't, he's earned it. He hasn't just gotten it. And I think that that comes from spending time with and getting used to, but also from those nonverbal cues <laughs> from a, from a robot that cannot make facial expressions. I'm sure that's pretty tough for a dog to translate, but at the same time, I think it's tough for Jeff to translate what the dog's thinking. Cause the dog's just constantly barking at him.
1: He tries. That's a really funny yes, scene, yes. by the way. When <laughs> he's like, woof, woof. You should have seen, I don't know if your dogs watched this movie with you, but Gimli watched it both times with me, and both times he was in trance, and he was just the loudest I've ever heard him growl. He was just <laughs> standing right at the foot of the TV going, Burr.
0: Both of my dogs oh. were dead asleep. <laughs> it was late. It was.
1: Oh, no. He was engaged. And then when they started throwing the ball, he popped up and like stood up and like started staring and tyler was like no Gimli, you can't get that (laughs) one it's not for you it's not real and he dude he was like locked in the whole time it was it's so fun to watch your dogs watch watching a movie that has animals he freaked out today i was watching yellowstone the tv series and there was a horse and he started growling at the horse like crazy and i think
0: that speaks to the type of dog that you have i mean both of the dogs that i have savvy's a retriever so she's always going to be a, a a ball catcher or whatever. Hope is very much a protector, and so it's interesting when they hear the doorbell ring or they hear something outside. Savvy will go bark at whatever that is. Hope will come and stand between whatever the thing is and us, or she'll jump on the ottoman. She'll she'll get between us and the whatever the danger is. So they don't usually freak out at anything on TV. Unless it's a doorbell. <laughs> so if it's something that is going to be similar to that, they'll go woof, woof, like that. And I'm like, whoa, 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 it's nine thirty. 30. Carson's asleep. Don't do that. Not yet, not right now. So, but I do think it's funny. And again, I think it's, it's neat to watch. That's what I think you and I are, you're discovering what I love about dogs is that their personalities are, are so different than that of cats or other animals because they emote so much more. The same thing can be said for Jeff. Jeff does not have face. He has to emote with other things, like leaning forward or cocking his head left and right. That's what dogs do. I, I don't see my dogs smiling unless they're ready for popcorn and they're you know, wagging you know, their tongues and stuff like that. That's the only time I hear them, I get them any close to actually smiling. Most of the time, they're just kind of giving me a blank stare. But in my mind, I know exactly what they're thinking because I've been around them for so long.
1: Well, let's talk about Jeff. Uh, Anything we haven't already talked about. First of all, I wanted to start by mentioning the VFX. There was some stuff I was reading from somebody who interviewed the visual effects supervisor about the film, and they were talking about how it was surprisingly low budget, and that Jeff was, as he was acted, he was a combination of Caleb Landry Jones, who did the voice, Tom Hanks himself, and then also animatronic motion capture and a mix of frame by frame animation which is pretty incredible um, i think he looks amazing he has a distinct look to him i think his movements are awesome i think the sound design in this movie is great and gives a very important weight to his actions like the step when he sits down like or when he makes it when he steps hard um, when he sits down in the front seat of the van you can really feel it like, you don't just see the van move or the RV move. You, you can hear that that heaviness, that thump. I love the sound when he's, like, shaking his head, trying to get the bolt out for, like, half the movie. That's hilarious, too. Uh, and m- anyway, the, the smaller robot, Dewey, was all practical VFX. In fact, he was an animatronic. He was the only thing that they actually built fully. And so he was wheeling through the desert, they said, the whole time, like, getting sand everywhere um jeff's hands were made of baseball gloves and the reason was so that they would be soft for playing with the dog and then his feet were made to be like crocs which we see finch wearing in the film if you look at the design of his feet they look like a croc and that's because finch loved crocs which i noted to you in a text message uh, because you yourself are unfortunately like my son you are both croc lovers
0: at post-apocalyptic the middle of
1: post-apocalypse and you this dude is out there wearing some green crocs with no socks and i'm like i was like are you for real right now (laughs) but i guess it's essential if any material is going to survive like a radiation storm it's probably whatever whatever poly methane (laughs) plastic rubber concoction or whatever it is that those things are made of Anyway, I um so yeah, I I love Jeff with all my heart. I love him choosing his own name. I thought that was so impactful and so neat because we always see the creator name the creation. And for him to be like, well, just so casually too. He's like working on something at the time. I don't know, he's like he's got like a little soldering iron or something. He's just kind of nah, 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 nah. well, what do what do you want your name to be? And he goes through like some random you know, ideas, and he's like, no, that's a human name. You can't name him that. And I love it, because that's when we find out Goodyear's name, but we don't know the meaning of Goodyear's name until later. It's a great reveal, the way that that kind of happens. And I I love how he picks Jeff, and the look on Finch's face is just kind of like, it's like a grin. And he kind of, you can tell he thinks it's silly, but that it fits his rules, and so he can't really say anything at that point. (laughs) It's like, okay, well, I guess if you want to be jeff you can be jeff but uh i just love all of you know the character development we get from jeff in such a short what feels like a short period of time there's so many things we get to see him learn to walk we get to see him discover himself and his appearance in a mirror for the first time that scene where he gets to see popcorn and is as giddy as you will ever see a child be about something the where he helps secure the RV and shows like a side of his worth and his value that I don't even think Finch realized he necessarily had. He comes over there, he just slams the, you know, stakes down in the ground with one hand. With Him learning how to shake hands, that's a great moment. Um, We mentioned him trying to talk to Goodyear, him driving the RV because he wants to, quote, impress dad, essentially is what he is wanting to, to accomplish at that time. And then ultimately that moment where he's using his brain to say look look i don't van the rv can't go under the bridge and finch pushes the rv under there anyway and of course it gets stuck and he's like no like the reason was i wasn't gonna go because i can't because we this was gonna happen but what does he do he you know gets out and he pushes it underneath And he even gives Finch a funeral, like he wasn't instructed to do that. That was like a natural thing that it feels like he just inherently realized needed to happen. And I I just loved seeing his character, I love seeing him putting on a coat and just wearing it around for no reason. He never, I noted that he didn't put the hood up. It's pouring down rain on him and he doesn't actually use the hood on the coat it's just he just seems to be wearing it almost like he just to feel human or to feel like one of you know like finch essentially but i also love that he never becomes self-aware to the point where he resents his own existence i don't i don't get that impression from him i feel like he's content in his own skin so to speak content in his metalness and I love that about him. It, it made him something that I wanted to hang out with, or someone, I should say someone, because Finch will yell at me if I call him an it or a thing.
0: So much good stuff there. I, I'm i with you in terms of loving the design. There's, a, there's something really neat about designed robots that not only look human, they have appendages, arms and legs, but don't feel heavy. So you put someone like him and Chappie next to each other. And I think those are two of my favorite robot designs because they have this combination of practicality in terms of like how they're made metal and things like that, but also the ability to emote the ability to move around and articulate their arms and legs in a way that, that makes sense. One of the things that I noticed was as the film moved forward, his voice got less robotic and it got more natural, more human, obviously from being around Finch, of learning how to to talk, but how to talk beyond just giving information. One of the things Finch says about the Golden Gate Bridge is he makes a comparison. You could tell me all the technical stuff. You could tell me how many rivets or how many cables are on there, how high it is off the ground, but you can't tell me what it feels like to be on the bridge. And that's important too, that human experience that you alluded to earlier. And it was really cool to see Jeff's evolution to become more human. I was really reminded of Data's journey from Star Trek The Next Generation. He would always, when he's asked about his sentience, he would always go back to saying, I endeavor to be more human. And that means being able to use contractions or being able to have emotion. None of that was necessarily part of Jeff's growth, but he became more more human as a byproduct of the rules set in place. If we all live by a set of rules, I mean, we live by a set of rules, all of us do. We have beliefs, we have a faith in something, whether it's in God or ourselves or whatever we have a set of rules that allow us to function every day. We have a set of beliefs, and those sets of beliefs define how we live, how we react to certain things, how we think through and make choices. And Jeff really does bring that to light as a non-sentient to a sentient being. One of the best moments for me that I thought pushed him forward was that Night. I don't think it was in the desert, but it was off the highway, and they were sitting around by a campfire. Jeff was talking to Finch about how things were and about traveling at night versus in the day. The scene cuts to the next day. Finch and Goodyear are in the RV. Jeff's still out there, but he's not out there just as a robot. He's out there with this blanket over his body and over his head as if he got cold. And just like the coat, Aaron, he didn't need that. but he it doesn't can, get cold. <laughs> but he doesn't get cold. It, it pushes him to be more human, to sort of try to understand what it's like. And even though he will never feel, even though he will never be able to eat anything, at least I don't know, I mean, the story really kind of leaves you in a place where you're like, okay, well, that was a good story that has a potential second part that I don't really want to see. I, I'd i like to believe that he will stay physically like he is. He will continue to need parts and fix himself and take care of Goodyear. But the journey kind of leaves you with them thinking they're going to run into people eventually. You know, they're on the Golden Gate Bridge and they see these fantastic letters of people saying, hey, mom, just wanted to let you know we're going to be okay. I think those are just more moments, more things that allow Jeff to understand humanity a little bit more. And so my thought is that he's going to eventually run into people that aren't bad, people that are probably going to freak out because they're like, what's this robot driving an RV with a dog? And that's what the next iteration of his life's going to be. Again, I don't want to see that. I like keeping it in my head But I think what it does for me is it just helps me trust in the evolution of Jeff as an entity beyond a robot. Eventually, I think he becomes more than a caretaker. I think he will (laughs) maybe go to the Isle of Dogs and realize, wow, this is my life. (laughs) Especially since Goodyear basically looks like the main dog from Isle of Dogs. (laughs) And uh, anyway, yeah, I I think he's a fantastically designed robot. I love the the voice performance. I think it's fantastic. And I think his relationship with Finch just feels more like a companionship by the time we lose Finch and by the time the film ends. I also like the fact that there wasn't a lot of time between Finch's death and when we get to the end of the movie because we didn't need to stay there. We didn't need to linger on that. And the movie it's not
1: about that it's not it's about the journey to get to that point. yes
0: yeah and and for me i think that from a technical standpoint the movie was just long enough it ended at the right place and it was really satisfying
1: yeah i also love that he makes a sign at the golden bay bridge not only does he put up the postcard with a little drawing but he puts a little sign there that says finch weinberg loved by goodyear and jeff which is adorable like it's again recognition along with like the funeral that he has come to emote in a way that is more human than you would expect from a robot and i I agree with you i want nothing told to me about the future of this the reality is no matter what he finds the dog has a limited lifespan and then he's going to be alone as far as he's going to have to have met new people at that point to become friends with or whatever. The reality is that we do live in a pretty crappy world for the most part. And in this scenario specifically, who knows how people would react and treat him if they discovered him. I don't need that story. I don't want that story. Like that just is depressing to even think about. I love the hopefulness of, he's going forth as he was designed to be, to do that thing and that's enough because that's satisfying and i think that is what would make finch happy which is oh it allows him to die happy and allows him to die peacefully and and i love that i think it's beautiful
0: yeah it sound all that my friend well just like every good film has a good ending this is the end of our episode because really, I think we've covered pretty much everything. We hope that anyone listening has enjoyed the conversation. Again, if you are listening and you haven't seen the movie, what's wrong with you? But it, this is a shameless plug to say, get Apple TV, spend the $5 and just binge to your heart's content. There's enough good content out there that it's well worth it. Um, I almost wish that we could endorse this give away you know, a free month on behalf of Apple. Maybe we should call up the big wigs and say, hey, listen, we can be advocates for you. So this is one of many things out there that you should definitely get your eyes on. In the meantime, that'll do it for us. If you want to talk about this or anything else, we've got a Facebook group, we've got a Discord channel, multiple places you can engage with us. We hope you do. Until then, we will sign off. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation. We'll talk soon.
1: Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you